Hi there. Welcome to listeners from across the globe. My name is Allison Nune, and this is Best Damn Reality, a new podcast intending to help bridge the spiritual and material worlds. Each week, I invite you to join me and to suspend all preconceived notions, to open your minds and your hearts to seeing everything from a much faster perspective. Should you be enticed enough, please also consider visiting me on my YouTube channel and on my business Facebook page, both under the name Allison Nune. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. Episode 5. Welcome back to anybody that has tuned in to any or all of the first four episodes and to any new listeners uh, for whom this is the first show of mine that you've checked out, uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, every little bit of energy being directed towards the overall intention that I have, which is simply to be a voice and to be an energy out in the world of more unifying, more unifying, more love energy, more unifying energy, trying to find the win-wins between each and all of us, as opposed to being focused on problems and our differences. I believe that in the smallest of ways, simply focusing instead on our similarities, on the things upon which we can agree, focusing on the positive, focusing on uh, the love aspect of anything can be and will be much more serving to us all individually and collectively as opposed to the approach that I feel and that I experience is still representing the mass reality at present, which is I feel worse than ever. I feel um, that it is still very angry. I feel everything is still hyper-polarized where you're either on one side of an issue or the other, and there's not much room for that voice of reason in the middle, the voice and the interpretation that really, honestly, genuinely intends to attempt to see things from multiple perspectives and appreciate and respect multiple perspectives and still also be able to maturely maintain one's own opinions, while also, like I said, simultaneously holding respect for somebody most challenging during these times is holding space for somebody with an opinion that is completely opposite of yours. And I would argue that there is much more energy out there feeding the duality, feeding the polarization, feeding the us versus them and the fighting as opposed to voices and energy being, um, you know, having an equal say that are coming from a very different unifying perspective, which is all that I am intending to be. Does not mean that I don't have my own opinions, obviously, uh, I try to be, I attempt to be very careful when I state what my, you know, from what and upon what I am basing any one of my opinions or suggestions or ideas. Um, But obviously, it's coming through the filter of my character. And uh, that is what I know best. That is the only thing over which I will claim authority and expertise is myself. That's it. I don't represent any other field, company, person. I represent myself. And I stand behind my vast array of experiences and my ability to intellectually analyze them from more of a left-brained perspective, but also working to allow for much more openness and creativity and, uh, you know, room to recreate 
and have space for the world of the unseen and the unknown. This was a tough week for me. Um, took in a lot of different uh, things this week that have affected my consciousness, uh, resulting in me at least temporarily taking a leave of absence from at least one social media platform in Facebook. Um, really judged myself very harshly in a little exercise that transpired for me individually yesterday with Facebook. Uh, and recognized that while there are positives, everything's got positives to be certain, uh, Facebook is a very limited way to interact, very limited. And it is not, in my opinion, the best of platforms or even close to the best of platforms to attempt to engage in an honest discussion with multiple perspectives attempted to be brought to the table. And I sort of fell into the, what I call the lower frequency. I didn't intend to with something that I reposted and shared yesterday, but it has weighed heavily on me. And I've done some serious internal processing of what transpired because I take very seriously what I put out into the world. I don't take that lightly. I am very cognizant of when I'm, you know, potentially sharing something that may trigger somebody. And I'm not, I'm not trying to do it to upset. But at the same time, we are living in very intense times right now. Uh, end of July, just a couple days here left in July as of this recording in 2020. And I just feel a personal responsibility with the experiences that I've had the past 10 years in my spiritual work and with my own personal spiritual growth. It has been a very different experience than more of the physical-based you know, regular world. It, there's, it's like my introduction to my podcast says, I, I am honestly intending to be a bridge, um, and to try to integrate more of spirit, more of this magical, unseen, limitless nature of reality into our experienced with our five senses reality. And I find that I can sometimes get tripped up within that. I try to stay from the higher perspective, but when I come down and attempt to share my personal thoughts or attempt to feel where others are coming from, there is so much emotion and so much purposeful, imbalanced energy being puppeteered upon us still. And to sort that out is very intense work and not easy. And, you know, I have made my life the past 10 years outside of those more defined rules and laws and labels of, you know, a set job with set hierarchies and set ways of how and what you can say, it, it does not. That, that limited structure of order was too much for me to be able to thrive. But what we are experiencing in our world at present is chaos. And it is, you know, and being that we are not even truly being able to really live at present go out in the world and live. I haven't really been living um, the past four months has been very difficult for me. I would argue, argue very difficult for all of us. And it is almost impossible to know what is truth and what is fake and what is lie and what is deceit 
unless you are directly experiencing it. And I today, today's topic title of the show is integrity in leadership. So it's very apropos that that it almost makes perfect sense that I had sort of the wild week that I did um, very much along these ideas, along these lines of, you know, what, what is leadership? What should it be? Um, and how my personal experience of what that has been has morphed and changed over the decades of my life. But before I get into uh, that topic specifically, I wanted to address one question from one of the very few people that I know listens every week, posed a question to me uh, this, this last week about last week's episode, and I wanted to address that really briefly here. And the question really was pretty general. It wasn't specific to last week's episode, which in my own self-assessment, thus far, that was my strongest, most solid recording that I've put together yet. And from a lot of different perspectives, but it's still, this is very much still a uh, evolving process for me, a maturing process for me in no small way, still finding my voice. And it's particularly hard to come back and do a recording after you've had one from your own judgment, your own criticism was pretty decent. So that's another thing that's been riding on me all week is how am I going to follow that up? And the bottom line is this, it's, it's going to be what it's going to be. I am not, I am far from a perfect human being. I come to you each and every week openly and honestly as just me. I'm a single American woman in my mid-40s that is consciously doing the work to be the best human being I can possibly be for myself, for those most closely in my very small circle of my, you know, most intimate relationships and then really intending to take the best aspects of myself out into the world and to have the chance to put those into action in some sort of way. Um, So those are my intentions, but I am far from perfect. And these recordings each week, how this is just, it is what it is. So I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over how poor or how well I feel I do in any given week. I assess it and then I move on. However, I do, as we go forward, if I do have particular listeners that have particular questions, it thrills me to be able to address something specifically. So this was posed to me by, like I said, there are three people I know that listen every week. And for that, I am so eternally grateful. Um, Small as a number it may be, due to my personal beliefs that this is, uh, you know, shifting into the new paradigm. It's no longer about quantity. It's way more so about the quality of connections that I have and the quality of, I don't care. I don't care to have millions and millions of listeners from just a surface level. It's not about the numbers. I'm really aiming to speak to others for whom deep connections matter for whom uh, trying to engage out in the world as an autonomous, self-governing human being that doesn't need the outside validation and outside governing in any way. Um, that, that is ideally who I'm speaking to at the highest sort of level, if you will. Um, and the numbers don't matter. So maybe only three listeners, but they are three listeners that I just, it, like I said, it, it's way more than just the small number of three to me. And this person said to me, you know, Allison, I'm, I'm still kind of confused on how, what you're talking about, how this all relates to the project of ripple 
of Ripple, Ripple 2020, which was the project, the big project that I introduced in the very first episode. And my first response was um, to remind again that these first 12 episodes, I'm very, I'm being very purposely focused on what these first 12 episodes are. The first one introduced this project called Ripple 2020, which very, in summary, is about raising $4 million by $1 increments and then redistributing the roughly $2.5 million that would remain after taxes back out into society in very different ways, a very unique project to me. Um, and we will delve into, I will delve into that project after these first 12 episodes and episode two through 11 were centered around me identifying in the regular world, the physical mainstream world, identifying using a number of different factors people with whom I had directly crossed paths at some point in this life that I felt had the potential to reach a large number of individuals through their own network. And as such, the goal down the line when the project of Ripple is more developed, way more developed than it is now when it's filled in. I have the shell, but the details of the filling in, the specifics, remains, remains to be done. When the project gets to a much more formulated place, I then will reach out to somebody that I've referenced in each of these stories each week to directly ask them if they would be willing to spread the project idea of Ripple to the people within their networks in the hopes of trying to, again, draw in 4 million people willing to give a dollar to see this little experiment of energy, is what I call it, to be a part of this experiment with a dollar buy-in. And the goal was, let me see who are the most, the people that stand in the most influential places of all these big segments of society that I have touched down in, in my life. And so in answer to that person's question, that's each week I'm focusing, if you will, on one segment of our society at, at large and how that, how I personally crossed paths with that segment of society. In episode two, I talked about my basketball story and as such, my direct interactions with multiple players that used to play in the National Basketball Association in the NBA. In episode three, I spoke of my interaction with a guy that used to be in Hollywood as an actor and my interaction with him when I was studying abroad in Australia way back in 1998. So professional sports, general big area of society was addressed in episode two. Acting, specifically the big time acting, right? What we identify as the most successful are the ones that go to Hollywood from certain perspectives. Um, that's episode three. And last week's episode was a story that took place on a bicycle race course that I was working in March of 2017, and Donald Trump happened to be at the hotel that he owns down here in Florida, which was on the course and provided uh, a very interesting story, very, very interesting experience for me. And doing, during <laughs> the uh, enactment of that day, in, in the nature of handling my job that day, I interacted with the Secret Service, and that brought to memory that I, I have a Secret Service agent friend. And, um, and so, big segment of society that last week addressed is 
arguably on the periphery for both of them, but politics and specifically the United States Secret Service. So an aspect of our, our governmental structures, our, you know, protections for our government. And this week, I'm going to be talking a little bit about big, uh, more politics and uh, business, big business, through one single example of an entrepreneur from my life. And I'm going to jump right into talking about these two men and I'm just going to let it go where it's going to go and then try to interweave it, um, you know, see what happens here. So basically this is uh, talking a little bit about very strong influences in my life when I was married. My ex-father-in-law was a self-made, is self-made, multi-millionaire. And, you know, didn't even have a college education. Um, Very successful in business. He was made a great deal of his money in real estate in the Tampa Bay area and just had tremendous philanthropy. He was involved in huge projects in the Tampa Bay area as a philanthropist. Um, And through my nine years with his son, Obviously, I had many, many interactions with this man. And man, did he blow out of the water all of the notions that I had of one, wealthy people, two, Republicans, and three, through some of his friends, even some myopic opinions that I held at that time of politics. And you know, and I feel like even talking about those things and weaving them into present day is extremely relevant, given that one of the things that I, I find that is extremely limiting present day and back then is this notion of this need for us as humans to identify within groups and then to see one another almost First, as a group, some sort of member of a group, as opposed to first seeing one another as unique individuals with unique experiences. And just because you may align with some particular group does not mean that you align to every aspect of that said group. Growing up in my home, I've shared not so much on my podcast, but more personally on my YouTube channel and and within my Facebook network, the very strong influence of my father growing up, very strong political, being interested in politics and in, you know, people that serve and have served our, you know, as agents of change. I grew up being very sympathetic to the, particularly to the struggle of the black Americans. I was brought up in Detroit and born in Detroit. So my father, having spent his entire life in Detroit prior to us moving to the suburbs in 1984, you know, obviously affected how he presented and what he presented to his children. And I definitely, I mean, I have only gratitude and appreciation for my dad sharing all that he did. A good amount of my desire and aspirations to be a positive agent of change in the world came from these talks with my father. However, looking back, it was absolutely positively presented, very one-sided, very left-leaning very blue. And it wasn't until I met my ex-husband who coming from his family was very red. And this was, you know, kind of the early stages, very early stages of my adulthood. I mean, I met my ex-husband shortly after relinquishing my athletic scholarship when I was 19 years old. So I was just a kid and really just getting started as an adult but quickly was learning that I had very, and I don't think I'm even close to being alone in this, but I was very much identifying with a far end of a spectrum. 
and was only beginning my own experiences out in the world, which were going to allow me to formulate my own opinions and my own place on these various spectrums, political and otherwise. And I had, we had only really one person in my life prior to meeting my ex-husband and becoming a part of his family. I only knew one super wealthy person with any sort of direct experience. And we're talking super wealthy. And I referenced this family member in last week's episode. It's an uncle by marriage who was Harvard MBA graduated, um, you know, was, uh, an entre- not an entrepreneur. He was a businessman, um, venture capitalist. He was a venture capitalist and extremely successful and also self-made and very, I mean, we're talking, you know, his home was, is that they still live in is like 12,000 square feet. So I, I had some experience with wealth, but pretty much with only that particular aunt and uncle. And really it was my uncle that had earned that wealth. And You know, my father's opinions of how that uncle displayed and handled his wealth was, you know, was not necessarily one that was aligned. It wasn't, you know, I would say it was more of judgment and criticism than of something that was portrayed to me in a, you know, in a particularly positive light. Uh, It wasn't portrayed to be overtly negative either. I certainly could observe, you know, my uncle was a very confident, is a very confident man. Something that being successful in business will, he had something to back it up. He was excellent at what he did. He earned that success and he was not shy about spending that money and, and showing it off. And it was just that that was not necessarily the way that perhaps other people in my family would have necessarily demonstrated any sort of wealth that they may have achieved. All to say, I had a very one-sided, lopsided view of what wealth was. And I was, the way I interpreted it, what was being revealed to me and, and talked about to me, specifically by my father, but then also more generally by the blue side of the political spectrum, it seemed to me that more often than not, wealth was portrayed to be an evil thing. Money was an evil thing. And it wasn't until I met my ex-in-laws that I was shown a completely opposite example where those sort of generalized stereotypes were immediately proven to not be true, at least not in this case. And it was my first entrance into, one, learning the dangers of generalizing, you know, anything and making assumptions about anyone. You know, you need to actually allow for direct experience and allow people to show you who they are, not by some generalized categorization, but simply with their, your direct interaction with them. And this particular man was the, in my opinion, absolute beautiful epitome, the best example I could possibly imagine to this day of wealth and, and power and what he humbly did with that. Again, huge philanthropist. He was a founder of the Performing Arts Center in Tampa. He was a founder of the Cancer Research Center, a world-renowned cancer research center. He was part of the founders of that. He was on the boards of hospitals, very active in healthcare, very active in what he was giving back to. He didn't just write checks. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to multiple man of the year dinners over the course of the nine years that I was involved with his son, either as boyfriend, girlfriend, or later as husband, wife. I went to many uh, ceremonies where he was honored by various organizations in the Tampa Bay community as man of the year. And this man was, again, 
the humility, the humble nature that he would come to that microphone when it was time for him to give his speech, always thanking and never forgetting his roots. And the same, he would share oftentimes different versions of the same story. And I remember when he was talking about when his politician friend, Lee Moffitt, who was in the House of Representatives and personally responsible for heading up the efforts to establish the Cancer Research Center that is now known around the globe. You know, my ex-father-in-law and Lee Moffitt, these guys were on the ground floor. And I remember my ex-father-in-law saying when he was first approached to pledge a million dollars, he did not have a million dollars. He didn't have the money and his, he was this beautiful balance of faith and living his faith. And just, I remember him saying, God, he stated it. He made that promise and the money came, the opportunities to earn that within his realm of work just came. And he very much believed that that was God, you know, I don't want to say it's not rewarding him. It was just, it was all his faith and spirit guided and being blessed. He was being blessed with his success because he was willing to contribute and share that success within his community. And I just, he was, I remember years later when I was evaluating, I was very unhappy almost immediately in my marriage. And it was simply due to the fact that I didn't know myself and I had no business committing myself to marriage. I had barely dated. My ex-husband was the only man I had really ever been with. And I just, I was, I, I was trying to follow society's you know, the pressure I was feeling from society. I was approaching 25 when I got married and, you know, I just, I, what what can I say? I mean, I felt pressured. I felt like there was a time limit on if I had to be married by this time and I had to have kids by that time. I really didn't have a clue. And I, you know, I remember though, when I was evaluating And it was after a particular something happened in my life that made me evaluate this. And I recognized, oh man, I can't believe this, but I I have to, I have to divorce him. I have to get divorced. I never should have gotten married. And one of the very hard things that I had to admit to myself, very embarrassing to myself, very hard to work through the judgment and criticism of myself, I had to admit that the wealth in his family and the, the admiration I had for his father and almost wanting to be taken under his father's wing. I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to be a, I want to be out in the world. You know, he was his own boss and, and, and he was able to have all these opportunities to be in service to the community, but also in charge of his work that got that money And I didn't know how, I didn't know why, but I just, I'm like, that's what I want to be and do. And I just remember having to admit to myself that surely the wealth in my ex-husband's family was not (laughs) to buy me diamonds and money and, and things because I, his family wasn't like that. And I absolutely was not like that, but the security of what I perceived wealth to be. And also, I just kind of felt like, man, if that was my dad, I'd be looking to pitch ideas and be out there trying to work again to change the world in my own way. And I just made all these assumptions. They weren't really assumptions. They were hopes. And they were that is not a reason to marry his son. And I think I was hoping and wanting my ex-husband to be more like his dad. And the truth was that he wasn't. He didn't have that same level of ambition. He was a very talented, very intelligent, kind man, my ex-husband was. But I knew that I had a lot of ambition. I had a lot of energy and I wanted to make my own, my own mark. And I didn't want anything to be handed to me. 
I wanted to be mentored. I wanted to be guided, but I, I wanted to earn it for myself. And I, I think I, I was secretly kind of hoping that my ex-husband was going to be like his dad and he wasn't. And that was so unfair of me to, marry him with, you know, and, and of course I didn't have the full awareness of this when I made the choice to get married. But when that became clear to me, I knew the only right thing to do was to leave the marriage. But that was a a very powerful time for me to admit that, to admit what role money had played in that decision, if only for security purposes. However, I will never forget that unbelievable example of my ex-in-laws. Oh, to this day, that example of what a wealthy, successful person, how, you know, yes, they had two very nice homes, one in Tampa, one in North Carolina, but they were not over the top. You would never guess that these folks had the amount of money that they did. And to me, that was much like Joe Dumars was for me when I met him as a child, that they set a tone for me of what I wanted to model and what I wanted to become. I wanted to earn wealth, not to flaunt it, but to have the ability to then be my own person, be my own boss, and then contribute in my own unique way in the various communities of which I was a part. And I will forever have my ex-father-in-law at the pinnacle of an example of what that was. And I remember the first time I went to his North Carolina home, they used to have this big party, the Woolly Worm Festival, in mid-October. They always hosted a huge party where tons of their friends came uh, up from, from the Tampa area. And man, this was like a who's who's list of Tampa. I remember Wayne Huizinga was there the very first year. Wayne Huizinga used to own, he's now deceased, but he owned the Miami Dolphins and Blockbuster Video, among other things. And he flew up one that first year on his own 727, I think. Um, lots of the who's who of Tampa, the mayor of Tampa was there, uh, Roger Whitley of Roger Whitley Chevrolet. And all these people had met my ex-father-in-law when he was the president of this bank. He was, he started in the banking industry and it was at that time, there were just two branches of this little bank in Tampa. And he started there when he was 18. And I remember him telling the story of he would constantly prepare himself for the next role on the hierarchy above him. He would always, he was always ready. He self-taught himself whatever was required skill-wise of the next roll up on the ladder, on the hierarchy, and he always prepared somebody that was ready to take his place on the rung, on the lower rung. And he built his way up like that at this branch and became president at 30 years old. And all these guys that were still friends, all these businessmen were people that Ted had given a loan to. He had directly given them loans to start their businesses. And it, it was like old school, handshake, like long. It was when things were still personable and trust was a, your word and a handshake. And the first year I got to witness all of these hyper successful wealthy people, again, I was just floored with the humility of all of them politicians, businessmen. It was, it was incredible. It was an incredible example. And I felt extremely fortunate to have had the chance to just interact with that. And again, to experience the other end of the spectrum as compared to what I was brought up with my limited experience and being on one end, that blue end, and now being in this more red version of the world and seeing that, wait a second, You can't hyper categorize anybody. You can't make assumptions about anybody based on how they identify within any group, least of which politically or monetarily. 
And one of the men that I met year after year, he was, he also had a place in the same city in North Carolina. And when my ex and I, most of our vacations, we would spend in North Carolina. And so I would see Lee Moffitt all the time, all the time. And Lee was a Democrat. He was a Democrat, but again, their examples. Now, of course, I only knew these people all on the surface other than my ex-husband and other than a little bit deeper, his family, but all these other people I'm referencing, clearly I didn't know their, their dark sides or what any potential. We all have dark, we all have negative, but I'm not about focusing on that. I'm about focusing on and seeing the best in people. And that was not a hard exercise in this group of folks. And it was clearly a lifelong impression that it had on me because it's now been over two decades since I had those experiences. And I, you know, they fall in line. It was those gentlemen that I think of when I think about traditional leadership especially in Lee's case, because he was a leader in the political world. He was an elected official. In my ex-father-in-law's case, that was more of the kind of leadership that I envisioned for myself. One where I'm a leader within simply the example of my own life. I'm not interested in being the boss of anybody. I'm interested in being out in the world consciously co-creating with other self-governing adults. And what I mean, I don't mean like, you know, we all exist in the systems that they are. I mean, they're going to, if they continue to exist, they continue to exist. We all participate or don't participate to varying degrees. But in the end, what I have experienced is most people that have achieved high levels of success, however that's defined, whether they're at the top of their game in what their profession is, whether they are very influential in their profession, which those two tend to correlate, whether it means in being defined by having a large sum of money and they're influential in that regard. Most of the, across the board, when I've met people that fall into any of those categories, these people are not victims. These people are self-made and work hard and sacrifice and lead more than anything through their example. And that is what I'm looking to be a part of in the world. That is, you know, certainly when I was younger, I was the president president of my school when I was in eighth grade. I was the president of the National Honor Society when I was in high school. I was the president of multiple organizations after I relinquished my basketball scholarship and became more active in other groups on campus as a college student. So I have a lot of experience in my youth as a leader within groups. But even in those experiences, what I remember you know, what I, what I remember most is it was the 80, 20 rule. It was like 20% of the group was doing 80% of the work. And I'm not interested in no longer in serving as a leader in more of that sort of capacity. I don't want to be the president of a company with 10,000 employees. Do I want to be in charge of my own project? Yes, that's what Ripple 2020 is all about. Do I want to constantly have a variety of projects in which I'm involved? Yes, some of them in which I would love to be a leader because that then it's something that I'm ultimately organizing and the people with whom I'm working, if I have to pay them, I pay them as a 1099 employee. My company will always just be me and I want a chance to be able to be just me in my unique capacities out in the world. And in this case, I'm looking to lead out in the world in terms of trying to integrate more of spiritual, more of the unseen world and recognizing its role in creating the physical world. And that's a tricky line. And a lot of times, you know, that's not a combination that, that I have come across very often. Somebody that is very successful 
in the three-dimensional world, the mainstream world, I, you know, you don't necessarily, um, again, I I don't even want to try to make any sort of generalization because I I think you've got the gamut. I think you've got people on the spectrum that have achieved great success and claim to be atheists and have no spiritual connection that they, you know, acknowledge. And then you've got people like my ex-father-in-law who overtly spoke of God gracing him with success in business after he had made these commitments when he didn't have the money. And there was a huge spiritual component of everything that he was. And he took that. There was no separation of that with his work. And that is something that identifies me as well. There's no way I can separate, you know, separate, take out and remove and see it separately, my spirituality and the work I'm intending to do. I, 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 I just, you know, I think if we're all encouraged just to be open and transparent and honest, that's the key. That is what, you know, I I think is, is, is key in terms of existing in our world. However, openness, honesty, and transparency are not exactly the adjectives that I would choose to characterize the top layers of leadership throughout the various aspects of our society. As we wrap this up this week, and as I weave into the unseen interpretations of our times along these lines of leadership, let's just examine a few examples, factual, that are now proven to be factual of the highest levels of leadership in this country. And before I get into those examples, let us remember here, you cannot have a happy ending to an unhappy story. And in the world of leadership, in structures of hierarchy, what exists at the bottom is a reflection of the top. You cannot expect the bottom of a hierarchy to be positive and honest and open and transparent and good and serving if the top of it is the exact opposite. 2008 financial crisis, the deceit and the lies that took place, that caused and what was known and to whom and at what levels, going all the way up to the SEC and nobody being held accountable at the expense of the masses, it speaks for itself. Unacceptable. Catholic Church keeping priests in service that are known to be child abusers. (laughs) Again, you don't, there's nothing more that needs to be said. That's the leadership. That's what the leadership, they're the ones in charge. They make the rules. If this is how leadership is behaving and everybody in a hierarchy system is at the whim of the leadership, if the leadership is corrupt, The entire thing is corrupt. And finally, our world of politics. Lobbyists and special interest groups dominate the world of politics right now. That is not an opinion. That is fact. And as I've mentioned before, I don't think in one of my podcasts, but certainly in many recordings on my YouTube channel, when I was, I have a graduate degree as a secondary social science education teacher when I was studying for what was called my content area exam to complete my certification to teach in the state of Florida, in the process of studying for that exam, I learned something that I was never, I never knew. And that was that our founding fathers never, ever intended politics to be a career. It was never intended to be a career. It was intended entirely to be an act of service for a short designated period of time because as visionary as they were, they could see the inherent conflict of interest that would take place if all of a sudden this system became led by people who were now career politicians. Hence why all these 244 years later, we now see that it has evolved to arguably as corrupt as it can be when the people no longer are the ones 
that are influencing these politicians and their policy creations and their, you know, everything, every aspect of it is being dictated by money and by powerful industry, not by the people. And that is pretty much the exact opposite of what the founding of this country was intended to be. And how and why we still can be expected, how anybody, certainly somebody that can logically assess such things, factual things, and use deductive reasoning, how we can be asked to trust when this is what's demonstrated and this is just what we know. I'm not even going to talk about the cabal or the deep state. I'm not even going to bring that up. This is just what we know. And the, the magnitude of these examples, coupled with the fact that we live in a technological age where you can literally create anything to look real. Years and years ago in the late 80s, maybe the early 90s, early 90s, there was a movie called Wag the Dog where they basically created a war. They made up a war. That was 20, 30, 35 years ago. We know to what degree you can make anything up from documents. <laughs> I'll say it all the way up to a war. And we've trusted the leadership positions and we've created these systems where the average person does not have the direct access to what is being, you know, what, what's really going on. And we're going to give that our trust. Meanwhile, looking around and seeing all the ills of society, none of those problems have gotten any better. Arguably, they're worse. Problems of poverty, addiction, crime. These things have all worsened in recent decades. So, <laughs> listen, if you were to grade them as a teacher, they get, they're definitely not, they're barely passing if they're passing at all. And I would argue that that's because on an evolutionary scale here, the divine plan of God, if you will, everything is playing out on schedule. We were never intended to need these systems. We are wired as expressions of that one energy. Call it God, call it the cosmos, call it the universe. We have the complete ability to self-govern ourselves. And if you're self-governing, and then you go out into the world and coexist with other individuals that have been trained to self-govern, you've got a completely different reality that will manifest. And that is what we were intended to be in these vessels. Now that's been manipulated and that's been controlled by a relatively small amount of dark energy on the planet for quite a long time. And the shift taking place right now, which is why it's so chaotic, is because the light is taking back the driver's seat. Enough human beings with the advent, the plus side of technology, is having access to more and more information. Enough individuals now are armed with the information, and there are enough people with the spiritual awareness that have remembered that the essence of us is this God energy and that we are all connected and we don't, these hierarchies and the arbitrary ways that we have separated ourselves and valued certain members in of society higher and better than other members, all of those things are fading away. And you can fight it or you can join it. Either way, it's completely up to each individual to give their attention and to hold their beliefs for what they feel is truth to them, what makes sense to them, and the kind of world they want to live in. So by all means, if you want to continue to trust all these leaders that have shown us collectively, they've shown us enough within their systems. And if that can take place within these systems, how you don't want something of that magnitude, that level of deceit has taken place, how do you ever fully trust it? And why would you agree to continue to believe that that's the best we got when we all came together to create that and agree to that in the first place all those years ago? Now we get a chance to come together and agree to create a different reality. And there are enough people with either straight, 
third dimension reasoning because they're not interested in giving their power away. I'm definitely not interested in having a government tell me what I need to do to my body and what, how I can live and in this case not live. This is a big pill to swallow. Especially as a healthy human being and I'm made to feel like I'm the devil because I'm questioning all of the virus aspects. And yet me as a healthy individual, I'm confined. This doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. But I don't resist it because my spiritual development tells me this is all part of the master plan. This is all part of the awakening and the remembrance that we don't have to agree to giving our power away. In fact, the most efficient way to manage society is to start recognizing that the only thing we can govern is ourselves. We don't really have any right infringing upon another human being in any way. And we've conditioned the masses to believe they need this external control. And all we got to do is recondition them. All you got to do is bring the power back to the people. And my interpretation of the times is that finally a critical mass of energy has been reached where those that dark energy, it's fighting. And that's, again, that's why it's so chaotic and ugly because everything is on the table. And trust me, unless you're directly experiencing it, you do not know what's true and what's not in this third dimension, the truth of the third dimension. Unless you're in the room, you've got the information, you're making the decisions or you're in that room. Anything that you're watching on the internet, on the television, on the television screen, and even documents you're reading, You have no idea for certain to what degree any of it is quote-unquote true. But the divine truth, the truth with a capital T, the universal truths, those you feel in your heart. Just start moving along and start training, believing that you do not need these systems and that there are millions and millions of people that have known this for a lot of years that have been doing the work energetically and beyond, to build, if you will, a new layer of systems and energy that is just ready, waiting and ready for enough of humanity to choose to see it in this more evolved way. We haven't even begun to touch the tip of the iceberg of what it means to be truly human and to live our divinity and to live with integrity and with the remembrance that we are all connected and that we are all human expressions. We are, at our essences, we are spiritual beings having a physical existence. And we are at this beautiful, critical time of being able to choose in mass differently to create a very different mass reality. And it's up to each and every one of us to make the choice. Do you want to choose to begin leading your own life through and through? Or do you want to believe that you can continue, have to continue to relinquish that control to these outside governing systems? It's completely up to each individual. Now, yes, if the systems continue to exist, obviously you've got to play within those rules. But it is definitely not something in mass that we need to continue to agree to. If enough of us come together to agree to co-create a new reality, existing of self-governing adults, each autonomously responsible for their lives all the way through, me, that's the reality that I'm looking for forward to experiencing. That's the reality I'm choosing. That's how I'm choosing to interpret this massive shift of what's transpiring on our planet. I know I have been leading myself and participating as absolutely minimally as possible in these systems for the past 10 years. Ever since my awakening, that's when I recognized and remembered that I had the choice. I didn't know 
that I could choose to opt out of seeing and participating in our limited reality as if it was the be-all, end-all. And as soon as I was made aware that there was a vaster choice to be made, you better believe I made it. And I'll tell you what, I have my hands full still, 10 years later, aligning myself to me and leading me. That is more than a full-time job. I don't have time to care about what anybody else is doing for them. I can't control it, so why would I care? And why would I ever give that power to anything outside of me? Giving power away to something outside of me means I have no control over that. I want to retain as much individual power and responsibility and control as possible. Problem is, after decades and decades of us conditioning the masses to give that power away, I can understand why people don't want to take and make the different choice. Because it is much more difficult. It has been much more challenging to create a reality, a reality for myself as minimally participating minimally in the rules and the systems and the games of the limited mainstream world. It's much harder to be out there creating work from scratch, representing myself with no boss to answer to, no supervisor to guide me. It's a very different thing to do because I also still have to play that other game. But as those systems collapse, I know I have a choice. I've been preparing and living that choice of being my own leader of my life. And I am prepared to help through the sharing of my own story to help anybody else who also wants to make that choice for themselves. Those are the folks I want to go out and co-create and live with side by side. People that are owning and being responsible entirely for their life. That's the choice. Or choosing to give that power away. Either way, it's entirely up to each of us. Thank you for listening. Talk next week.